I'm Ava Hartling. Welcome back to the Brand is Female podcast. With over 15 years of experience in a startup ecosystem and a Harvard master's degree, Maggie Adami Boynton has reshaped the luxury goods shopping experience with ShopThing. Launched in 2019, the first of its kind live video marketplace in North America has made luxury goods more accessible, gaining the largest social commerce audience in the world. Behind the scenes, Maggie actively fosters diversity and inclusivity in the predominantly male-dominated tech field. Her company stands out with a workforce that includes 76% women and 56% people of color, many of whom hold leadership roles. Recognized as one of USA Today's Top 100 Emerging Entrepreneurs of 2023, Maggie's achievements underscore her impact as an innovative leader. Plus, she's our guest on the Brandy's Female Conversation in Toronto this Wednesday. This season of our podcast is brought to you by TD Bank Group Women in Enterprise. TD helps women in business achieve success and growth through its program of educational workshops, financing, and mentorship. Visit thebrandiesfemale.com slash podcast and follow the link to find out how TD can help you. Are you ready to be inspired and connected? I'm really excited to share that we have officially launched the Brand is Female Conversation Series. Come and join us for a monthly conference that's changing the game in Montreal, Vancouver, and Toronto. Engage with fellow women thought leaders, innovators, and visionaries. Get ready for insightful discussions and powerful networking opportunities presented by TD Women in Enterprise. Visit our website, go to the events section, and secure your spot today. I can't wait to meet you in person. Maggie, it's so nice having you on the show today. Thanks for making time. Thank you for having me. If you've listened to the show before, you know I start these conversations by going back in time and getting to the origin story uh, in, the, in the journey of my guests. So I'd love to know, when you were growing up, what kind of career were you dreaming of for later in life? And was it at all connected to what you're actually doing today? Interestingly enough, I probably changed in my head what I thought I wanted to be many times. Um, I'm sure a lot of that was also influenced by my parents and schooling and all that fun stuff. But originally, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. And then I decided I hate paperwork, not for me. I don't want to sit in an office and you know look through contracts all day, every day. And so I shifted to psychology, which I love, personal passion of mine. Uh, then I decided that was way too much schooling. All while in the background, my passion has always been fashion, style, uh, in that sort of realm. And so I think, you know, in the back of my mind, that's always where I wanted to end up. Mm -hmm. But I didn't really think that that was a career opportunity. We weren't taught in school that, you know, you can have a career in fashion. It wasn't, it just wasn't really presented, um, at least when I went to school. And so, you know, there's all these other vocations that I thought I'd get into. And, And ultimately, I ended up in tech and uh, and on the business side, mm-hmm. uh, but I found in my way to fashion, you know, out of my <laughs> own doing, I was like, yeah. I will make this happen. Uh, Cause it was something that I, I was always very passionate about. So tell me a little bit about kind of the steps to get you there. Um, what did you end up studying in school? And then, you know, what was your first job out of school? Yeah, for sure. So I did end up studying psychology, okay. uh, which was riveting, amazing, loved it. Uh, and then coming out of psychology, realizing that I didn't want to spend another 10 years in school to become an actual psychologist. Right. I enrolled into an MBA. So I was like, okay, I really like business. Let me sort of try that. And while I was doing my MBA part-time, I ended up in tech. Mm -hmm. So I found myself just like, you know, an entry-level tech sort of like project management, project coordinating position. Uh, And I had always also really liked technology. 
Uh, so it was very interesting to me, loved it. And once I did that for a year, I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. I think mm -hmm. I can make a vocation out of this and then fell into project management. So ended up in the advertising space, uh, branding, advertising. And then actually my sister who you haven't interviewed before and her husband started a mobile agency and, and it was a startup and it was sexy and it was fun. It was cool. Uh, and so I joined them to scale it. Um, and then post that, I decided, you know what, I, I think I'm ready to take on my own venture. Came across this incredible trend called live shopping in Asia. Mm -hmm. Nothing like it existed in North America. And so I realized, you know, this is the moment in my life and my career where I can actually take the thing that I'm most passionate about and pair it with the thing that I know the best, which is tech. Uh, and create this incredible marketplace and bring it to North America. And did you have, I mean, I, we shout out to your sister uh, who's been on the show, Melody, um, and has been a part of our events as well. She has a wonderful journey. Um, so there's that entrepreneurial fiber that seems to run in the family. Did you have any, you know, role models who were a source of inspiration? Like who, you know, who made it seem possible for you uh, that you could start a business and have your own business? And I'm sure your sister is one of those role models, one of those role models. But who else was a source of inspiration for you? Yeah, she absolutely is. And I actually purposely didn't listen to her episode because I wanted zero bias. <laughs> um, and I'll go back and listen to see, to see how much similarities there are between us. But uh, our mother is incredibly entrepreneurial. So mm -hmm. we grew up with that, like, you know, entrepreneurial spirit in our home. Um, you know, just the risk-taking nature of my mom, the ability to be able to move from one venture to the next, not, mm -hmm. you know, maybe not knowing what, what it is that she was doing, but figuring it out, watching that growing up, I think was, was really huge for us. Uh, and she always pushed, pushed us to try different things. Mm -hmm. So I would say my mom for sure is, is the primary force of that growing up. And then you're a hundred percent right. Watching my sister go through it and being a part of that journey. because I joined their company very early on and yeah. scale it. And so watching that as well, uh, was huge and, and gave me the courage that I think I needed to be able to, Uh, start something on my own. And you talk about, you know, the trend uh, that if you, you observed in Asia first, and that's, that's really where it was born. Um, what kind of market research did you do? Or, you know, how, how did you know that this could actually uh, work in a North American market? Um, and, you know, did you spend a lot of time analyzing what, uh, what, you know, or, 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 you know, do consumer research to figure out if this would be a fit or was it more of it? Okay. I know we've got something here. I'm just going to jump ahead and do it. Coming from my background as an operational person, I'm very analytical. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, we also spent a lot of time building things for clients. And one of the things you do is you do focus group testing, you do in-market testing, you do all these things to make sure that your app, we, we developed apps at the time that your app would be successful or people would like to use it. And so coming from that lens, It wasn't enough for me to know that it was successful in Asia. I really wanted to see how the North American consumer would um, receive it. And so myself and, and the three other members of our founding team, uh, we basically went out like the very first iteration of this is we went out on a live shopping trip and I Instagrammed the entire thing to my followers where I would try and sell things, post the things I see in real time in the stores, et cetera. And I did that for about eight months before I ever even thought about, you know, actually putting money into this venture, leaving my job, like leaving the security of what I had before I ever did that. I spent eight months piloting this. So going out on weekends, 
uh, evenings, what have you, actually live streaming to my own audience, Mm. uh, my own Instagram audience before I was like, okay, you know what? There's something here. I'm able to sell. I'm able to put an ad on it and bring in some new people. And it was a lot of market research for me. I wanted to have, I want to be able to at least show a little bit of product market fit before, Mm -hmm. you know, I went head first. So you conducted your own, your own research, basically. Eight months, eight months of it. Yeah, <laughs> always a, a great, a great way to uh, to go about it. And when you first launched a company, and you referred to we, so was there somebody? Was there a partner early on with you? Yeah. So there is. There's three. There's four co-founders. Okay. So myself, my sister is one of them. Uh, my brother-in-law is another one, and then one of um, our employees from way back when at Plastic Mobile also came along for the ride. So the four of us. And tell me about the first few months of launching this, maybe the, you know, even the first year. Um, was it, you know, did did the project roll out the way you had expected or did you meet any unforeseen challenges or, you know, what kind of, what kind of obstacles showed up in your way you would say that you had to learn to deal with uh, on the fly? Yeah. Oh my gosh. The biggest obstacle you can imagine. And so I'll, I'll give you the story. So we decided, you know, we're going to, leave our jobs. We're going to, you know, jump headfirst into this. Actually, at the time, one of our co-founders, Melody, was still gainfully employed. So she's like, I'm, she wasn't even in on it. Uh, it was myself and her husband and my other co-founder. Um, and so it's tech. It's a tech product. You mm-hmm. got to spend months and months first building the tech product, which we did. So we spent from August till November building the product. And on Black Friday of 2019, we're like, great, we're going to launch it to the world. Incredible. We launch it, had an amazing Black Friday. And then we go into 2020, really excited, bring on a team. So we had just hired four or five developers. We just got brand new office space. And then March 2020 happens. <laughs> and you know what happens in March. I don't even have to say it. I'm Everybody laughing. knows. It's not funny. Happens. But there, the irony is there's been quite a few founders, you know, coming on the show and talking about this amazing product and company they spent months, if not years, building. And then they were ready to launch just in that window before 2020. Or in you got it. You got it. So, I mean, fortunately for us, we launched before. Unfortunately for us, in those early days, I mean, it's still very true, but in those early days, we were 100% reliant on stores. Right. So our live shoppers would walk into physical retail stores and live stream the things that we would see in real time. When stores are closed, we now have nothing to live stream. Yeah. Not only stores are closed, the entire world is shut down. So we spent two months just scrambling, pivoting. Like I spent at least the first three weeks being like, do I still have a business? Like, Mm -hmm. did I just start a business only to have to shut it down now? What do we do? We talked about pivoting and we started thinking about, okay, do we go B2B? Should Mm -hmm. we start giving the stores the ability to live stream? That was never really our vision, but you know, this is the world that we're in now. And then by the time, you know, we started getting our ducks in a row, stores opened back up. Right. But human beings were still not comfortable going into stores. So yeah. as you can imagine, what ended up happening is we actually exploded as a result mm-hmm. of our yeah. business became yeah. extremely popular. And so COVID was ended up being a massive accelerant to our business. But in March so 2020, I will tell you the panic <laughs> that was setting into us was real. Hmm. Do you did you find that you were able to kind of sustain that trend even post pandemic and as consumers started going back into stores even more? Yeah, for sure we were, um, and that was one of the concerns that we heard all across the board was this is a COVID trend and when yeah. people start going back into store, you know, are you still going to be able to provide them that service? Our service isn't really 
you know, me going into store physically for you. I, we do do that for sure. But our service is around convenience. It's around content creation and curation from influencers. It's about styling things for you. It's about far more than just physically going into store. And so we were able to maintain sort of our upward trend throughout COVID, post-COVID, all of it. You talked about, you know, the time you spend uh, researching and kind of setting up the technology, you hired developers. So how did you go about funding the business? And is that something you had lined up? Did you, maybe your partners contributed, but what was the strategy around financing the business? Yeah, so we self-funded for the first, I'd say about two years in the business. Then we got to the point where like, okay, we're scaling, we're growing. You know, as I mentioned, 2020 was really meant to be more of a product market fit year, but it became a year where we exploded and had to figure out quickly how to scale, which meant team, infrastructure, all that stuff. Um, and so once we hit that point, we're like, okay, we actually need real money. It became, let's go to fundraise. Mm-hmm. We are a Toronto-based startup. Never fundraised before. The previous venture was a profitable venture from day one, so it never needed any money. Um and so this was like brand new to us, not from Silicon Valley, not from New York, didn't know any investors. So we spent a good part of, I would say, a year just trying to figure out how to meet investors. Now, I don't know, maybe your audience doesn't know this. I don't know how well-versed you are with the, with the funding space. But even though 50% of women are, are founders, only 2% of funding goes to women. Yeah. And so that, I would say, you know, if you're asking my biggest challenge in the businesses, that would have been definitely my biggest challenge was funding fundraising during covid Mm -hmm. and fundraising as a woman um but we were very fortunate we did get to a point where we were able to raise a 10 million dollar usd uh financing round which we closed almost about two years ago which is really exciting uh but it was it was not easy and it was not a world that we know now that i've done it once i'm like oh easy peasy (laughs) i can i got this for every additional round yeah but the first time you do it it's everything is brand new did you find, um, and you, I mean, this is a conversation that's that's been had multiple times and it needs to be had because there's a, a major obstacle to women accessing the capital they need with, you know, so few women being able to uh, secure funds and also a lack of uh, support in general for women entrepreneurs from the VC community. And we know in certain industries, it's even more uh, amplified. Um, did you find you had to go, it sounds like you fundraised in the US, it sounds like the money came from the US. Um, did you find that there was enough, enough support for this category uh, within tech in Canada, or you had to turn to the US for obvious reasons? Um, and I, I would say I would have loved, and we started in Canada, I would have loved to take money from Canadians. Uh, but there isn't, as you mentioned, there isn't enough support. There isn't enough experience really in tech in Canada mm-hmm. uh, from a fundraising perspective. And especially in e-commerce, a lot of the marketplaces, yeah. e-commerce businesses have been funded in the U.S. Uh, and so that was, it was obviously much easier and a natural thing for us to go to the U.S. Um, but we we did try uh, yeah. and I will try again. And I hope mm-hmm. as our business continues to mature, there's also, you know, it might've also been us. There's a million mistakes we made throughout the fundraising process. And because we started in Canada, maybe that was sort of our playground Mm -hmm. and where we learned all of our mistakes. Um, But I'll continue trying to raise some Canadians because I think it's important to stay in this ecosystem. This season of The Brand is Female is made possible with the support of TD Women in Enterprise. And they're about confidently building you. As a woman entrepreneur myself, I know I need all the support I can get. 
It takes sound advice plus guidance to the right connections, tools, and resources. What's great about TD Services for Women in Business is their collaborative approach. TD can facilitate and connect you to workshops, coaching, and mentorship, and to engage other like-minded business leaders in an authentic way so we can share experiences and learn from each other. TD Women in Enterprise has banking specialists who are able to be proactive in the advice and guidance they give to women in business. If you were to do it again, knowing what you know now, what would you do differently? Kind of, you know, what would be the big pieces that you would approach differently from a fundraising standpoint? I would be so much more prepared. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't know early on that you have to run a proper process and treat it as if you would treat any other project that you're running. I didn't know any of that. Um, I didn't know, you know, how to build a proper data flow. We had to learn that on the fly. Like there was like everything, everything was brand new for us. Uh, and coming from, you know, a pretty small startup at the time, we were probably in terms of staff, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 people. Um, I didn't have a big finance team. So a lot of the data and things that I was pulling, I was doing myself. So if I could go back, I would say more emphasis on data, um, better preparation, understanding that it's a process. I mean, I'd be happy to talk to anybody about, you know, how to effectively fundraise now that I know how to do it. Uh, but I would change like almost everything. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll have to have a conversation just on the nitty gritty of, uh, of preparing for fundraising. Um, what was the turning point for you when you felt like, okay, this is actually going to take off, like the business is going to do well. And, you know, we've hit this major milestone was, did you, did you reach that, that point at any moment? It sounds like during COVID you saw kind of that explosion uh, in, in activity, but what was it specifically for you? That was really it. It was, you know, when we went from three hundred thousand dollars in sales in a month to a million dollars the next month i was like holy i can't mm -hmm. even and then again growth and it was just i couldn't actually keep up with it mm -hmm. uh, and this was a period where i was fulfilling everything out of my own basement like we right. didn't even have a PC yet um so i got to that point where i was like oh my gosh this is a real business and we need like <laughs> real support and real employees and real, real office <laughs> And a real office and real tech to be able to support this fulfillment center. Um, that happened. And I would say it kind of continued to happen. So every year we would have another one of those. You know, we had TikToks go viral and Instagrams go viral that would explode our business overnight. I think we went from 10,000 Instagram followers literally within a month to 100,000. Mm -hmm. And so there were a lot of moments like that throughout the years that I was, I kept being reminded that this is an explosive, incredible business. Obviously I felt it, but when you're an entrepreneur and you're dealing with the nitty gritty every single day, it's hard to see that level of, of excitement until yeah. those like, things happen. Those big mm -hmm. moments that you're like, holy crap, this is something that people really love mm -hmm. and are, people are really, you know, using and enjoying. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned a team, you know, who you've built um, and you've you've had staff since early on. Uh, what kind of leader are you and what's your definition of leadership? That's a really good question. So I think, um, I mean, I'd like to think I'm a good leader, um, but I think for me, being a leader is taking responsibility, taking accountability, taking ownership. And it's interesting, obviously, we're talking about a work context, but I think that that sort of transcends all types of leadership, whether you're leading a company and employees or whether you're leading a family and kids. For me, it means showing up, giving everything you have day in and day out. 
It means inspiring. It means providing vision for your team. Um, I mentioned, you know, taking accountability and responsibility, not only for the things that you do that are successful, but also the fails that you have, because there's a lot of mm-hmm. failures, yeah. but being, you know, the one that takes accountability and is responsible for when you fail. Mm-hmm. Speaking of failures, what's your approach and, you know, the kind of mindset that you try to cultivate when you run into an issue, something that seems insurmountable? Um, how do you deal, you know, with setbacks, with failures, and what's kind of that mental process that you go through to be able to overcome it and not give in to panic and, and, and fear? So one of our actual core cultural values is uh, fail, fail fast. Fail fast and learn. Oh, I like that. And so we are, I, I am not afraid of failure. I actually think failure is what makes us better. Mm-hmm. It is in failure that we learn how to be better. It is that we learn what we did wrong. I obviously don't like to fail in the same way twice. I think that's really important mm-hmm. for me. And I tell my team that all the time. But I would rather us fail than have never tried. That's right. kind of our culture. That's our ethos. That's my belief as an entrepreneur. Um, and, you know, when you think about, any of the world's greats, whether it's an athlete or an artist or a musician, they've had way more failures than they've had successes. Mm-hmm. And that's just the reality of being great at anything. Uh, and so, you know, culturally, we really believe failure is success. Mm-hmm. In that failure, we learn a lot. Um, that's kind of a core belief for us. And then I think the other thing is I was raised to think that nothing is impossible and we can't achieve it. And so obstacles for us, we view them as challenges. It's not Mm -hmm. an obstacle, it's a challenge. How do we get around it? How do we, you know, maneuver this? How do we take that obstacle away? How do we make it gone? Um, In life, I believe that. And in business, I believe that. Nothing is impossible. You just have to figure out how to approach it. I can I can hear your sister talking when you're when you're talking at the same time. So you were obviously brought up with uh, with that same philosophy. She said something very interesting too, where for her the reset well no actually the first thing she said is decisions you know don't be afraid of making the wrong decision because one decision just leads you to take another decision so if you've made a decision you don't like the outcome you just make another decision that takes you in a different space uh, which i thought was really brilliant like it's never the, the game doesn't end right once you've made a decision it's never final very few things i'll say some things are but very few things are ever that final yeah um and so, yeah, my mom would say there is a other door with a better outcome on the other side. So don't worry about it. I like that. I like that. I see where it comes from now. Um, what's the big goal, the dream with this company for you? And, you know, that big hairy goal that you're that you're setting out for yourself for the future. Yeah. So our vision is to allow anybody anywhere to basically sell and buy on our marketplace. So if you think about, you know, selling on Etsy or Poshmark or eBay or what have you, we want to be that. We want to be the Uber X of live shopping. Okay. Um, that's really our end goal. That's our big blue sky vision. And actually, we're, it's not even that far away. We've already started piloting it this year with incredible success. And so you'll see in the next six to 12 months, we continue rolling that out. That for me is it, is allowing anybody a safe place to sell and shop and, and to do what they love. Hmm. Love that. And I can see that happening for you. Um, there's few women in tech in Canada still. I mean, even fewer women who launched their own company in the in the tech industry. How do you think we can bridge that? What's what's missing from the equation? It, you know, we know there's also in the pipeline, there's also less women studying STEMs to, to start with. Um, but what what can we do, uh, you know, as a 
as a society to make sure we encourage more women to see potential in having a business in, in, in tech or in STEM in general? I honestly think it starts from funding. It mm-hmm. starts at the VCs. Uh, if women believe from a very you know early age that their odds of raising are like one one hundredth almost of the odds of a man, why would you try? I mean, mm-hmm. I would hope that they still would. Honestly, going into building this business, I didn't even know that. I didn't research it. I didn't think about funding. I just sort of like threw myself in. Had I known that, maybe it would have been something that deterred me as well. So I mm-hmm. think you know, building and getting to a place where there's more funding for women uh, and adequate funding because women also get funded like 50% less than yeah. men get funded. So it's not just that, you know, they're only 2% of them. They also end up with smaller check sizes, but making sure there are more funds that support women, mm-hmm. that they have access to that. Um, and then it's also access to uh, resources to help guide the entrepreneurial journey. Right. So whether yeah, that's, so important. you know, incubator programs and such that are female focused, uh, or allow more females in. I think it's 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 kind of the breeding ground is starting with that support early on and then making sure that they continue to have support and mm-hmm. they continue to have funding. Because you also don't want those 50% of women founders, you don't want 80% of them to go out of business because they don't have funding. Exactly. Uh, and so I think it's kind of a multi-step journey, but it, I, I believe it, it starts at the support. Um, and we won't go all the way back to STEM in school because I don't know how I can personally help yeah. that. But I know there are things that we can do as females in in, in tech, females that are females that are entrepreneurs. I think there's yeah. things that we can do to help support and bring up other females. And representation as well, right? Getting to share stories like yours, like your sisters and, you know, women who are successful in the industry and showing the path you've taken to prove that it is possible, even if there's less you know, funding available, it's still possible to make it through. And then you're a brilliant example of, you know, somebody who perseveres and then is able to make it work. Yeah, I will say that's huge for me. You're right. That's a big one is, you know, I always looked up to Sarah Blakely, the founder of Space, as, you know, this female entrepreneur that had no experience building a product in the retail world and just went for it. And hearing her story time and time again makes you feel like, you know what, I can do that too. Mm-hmm. And I know you're right, because when I speak at events, I will have a, you know, a bunch of women that come to me and say, oh my gosh, this is so inspiring. And you make me feel like I can do it. I'm like, you can do it. Don't mm-hmm. think that you can't do it. You can do it. But you need to at least see that there are other examples of that. that exist. You're, you're also proving that you can build this business in Canada, even though your funding came from the US, you know, for now, at least you're able to keep the business here and hire, you know, locally. Um, which is interesting because you're you're kind of at the intersection of fashion and tech, which are two industries where we see a lot of people leave because there's more opportunities in the U.S. in general. But you're proving that this can be done in Canada, too. Yeah, absolutely. It can be. Most of our workforce is based out of Canada. OK. Um, and then back to our heading to a more kind of personal outlook on things. Um, I know that tech startups are incredibly demanding. I mean, businesses in general. Um, how do you try to achieve? And I hate that concept of you know work-life balance that's being imposed on women. I think it's a myth. But how do you get to having some kind of balance in your life and staying grounded and you know not uh, not uh, sleeping at the office every night? What does that look like for you? I'll tell you, I'm a big disbeliever in work-life balance. Good. <laughs> um, and I'm going to tell you why, because we talked a little bit about the greats of anything, whether it's sports, et cetera, et cetera. None of them have ever had work-life balance. Mm-hmm. 
they have put everything that they have into their discipline, whether yeah. it is a sport yeah. or, or music or what have you. And so I, I personally believe if you want to be that good at anything, you have to put everything you have in it. Mm-hmm. That being said, I also have three small children and I have a family and I love them and I want to spend time with them. And so, you know, I have to find a way to have work-life balance um, or at least what I think is work-life balance. For me, it's about doing things outside of work that make me happy or keep me grounded. So I play squash. Sports are really important for me. Um, spending time with my kids. So I, I do a lot of traveling. But when I'm at home, just being really mindful of shutting down, spending that time with them, whether it's, you know, they come home from, uh, they come home from school at five o'clock. I'll get home at six. I spend six to nine with them. Then when they're down, I can go back to work and I can, you know, throw myself into, uh, into what I love. But while they're with me, I just like to be really conscious of that time we have together, mm. unplug from everything else and just spend that with them. So my team knows mm. you can text me while I'm with my kids, but I'm probably not going to respond. And then I'll pick back up at nine o'clock. So you have found some type of balance, at least that works for you and where priorities you know, you manage what the priorities are. It can't be everything all at once, uh, but you're you're able to kind of pick and choose based on 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 the days and the what comes first on that specific at that specific moment. Yeah, and it's a balance that works for me. A lot of other people yeah. will look at my life and say this is absolutely not balanced yeah. because eighty percent of your time goes towards your your job. But for me, that that is what has worked. I spend really important time with my children, and when I'm there, I'm very present versus like being there more often, but less present. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I'm at work, I, I get my all to work. Mm-hmm. Love that. Um, if you had to sum up your insights and, and your knowledge and wisdom into two or three pieces of advice for women who are either already in business or considering starting a business, what would your top piece of advice be for them? Okay. The first thing I tell everybody, whether you're a woman or a man, is if it was supposed to be easy, somebody would have already done it. It's not easy. It's going to be hard. It's supposed to be hard. If there weren't a hundred obstacles to jump through, then like, listen, a thousand people would have already done it. So Mm -hmm. don't think that because it's hard that you can't make it happen. It's supposed to be hard. My second thing is, uh, this one's especially for women, um, is ask for help. Yes. I didn't do a lot of that growing up. And I've learned as an entrepreneur you just need to be ruthless and you have to ask for help. And the worst thing that's going to happen is somebody's going to say no. The best thing that's going to happen is somebody's going to connect you to a VC that's going to give you money. Like there are so many good outcomes that come out of asking for help. So don't be afraid to ask for help. And sort of along the same lines is network, 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 mm-hmm. network. Uh, and it doesn't have to be for a purpose. Like you don't have to feel like, oh, I need something from this person. Just meet as many people as possible. Have the yeah. coffee, make the connections. And somewhere along the line, somebody will be really, really helpful to you in some way, shape, or form. Um, but if you're not having those conversations, you'll never know. Absolutely. Yeah, great advice. And I think for women, too, there's that pressure that comes with networking sometimes where, you know, for men, it's a little more innate. For women, it needs to be a bit more intentional. And, you know, we don't have time to go to like a fort cocktail, you know, this week on, on an evening. But networking can look many different ways. And LinkedIn is a great tool now. So there's no excuse not to reach out and, you know, book a virtual coffee with someone if nothing else is available. Absolutely. I would say as many coffees as possible. And it doesn't have to be sometimes in those big network settings, you're right, networking settings, it can be kind of awkward and you feel uncomfortable. 
but reaching out to somebody on LinkedIn saying, Hey, do you mind? Let's grab a coffee. I'd love to pick your brain. I would love to, whatever. Let's connect. I, I love meeting new people, whatever that looks like. Um, is, is great. Yeah. Agreed. Well, thank you so much, Maggie. It's been great hearing about your journey. Can't wait to see where you take the business next. We'll have to do a follow-up uh, and congrats on everything you've built. And I so appreciate you sharing all your wisdom today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Brandis Female Podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you to TD Women and Enterprise for their support of The Brand is Female. You've got it in you to succeed. Let TD help guide you. Visit thebrandisfemale.com to learn more.